brilliant. Well, this morning, I want to kind of share with us um, about what Jesus wants for our lives. What does he, what sort of person does he want us to be? You know, often with great wealth and great privilege can come arrogance, where it's easy to look down on other people and dismiss them because of our high station in life. And maybe we think that we're better or we've seen people treat us like that because they've felt that they are better than us. But I love that the kingdom of God doesn't operate like that in our lives. God doesn't want our lives to look like that. Dave's been preaching, hasn't he, about us being inheritors of great riches, about the promises of God. And they're exceedingly great and they're precious. And these promises are for you and I to receive and to live out every day. You know, Dave mentioned last week, it's almost like these promises are like a vat filled, a vault, I mean, filled and filled. And we only have to go in and receive and we can take as much from that promise as we want because God's abundance is so big and so bountiful. And yet God's plan for us as we receive the promises for God, which are overwhelming, that do make us wealthy and rich in our person beyond measure, is that as we receive this, that we don't become arrogant because of what we've been given. That we don't end up leaving a room and there's just a bad taste or a bad smell or odor in the place. We're not to be like spiritual snobs. But no, the Bible says that as his kingdom culture works its way out and through our lives, that actually, yes, we have a deep-seated confidence and an understanding knowing that we are inheritors of great riches and promise and blessing and abundant life. But as he goes to work at changing and transforming our lives, it doesn't manifest through us as arrogance. But rather, when we walk or leave a place, we've left the sweet fragrance of Jesus, where we haven't left a bad taste in the mouths of people, but instead people are drawn. Like, what, what happened there? What happened there? So this morning, I want us to look about what Jesus looks for us in our lives as his followers. This morning, we're going to read the opening verses of Matthew 5. And Matthew 5 is the beginning of Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon actually spans three chapters. And we're just going to look at the very beginning verses of Matthew 5, because Jesus is actually sharing with his disciples and the crowds that began to gather about what matters life most in life. And Jesus answers the question, what sort of people should we be? So we're going to read Matthew 5. And as we read it, let's not look at it as a great scripture that we can post and pop on our fridge. Or maybe, oh, this is brilliant. This would be a great wallpaper on my, or a screensaver on my phone or on my laptop. These aren't just nice verses for us to know. 
These verses are actually verses for us to live out. So we're going to have a look at these eight Beatitudes. In fact, Billy Graham described them as beautiful attitudes that will be characteristic of us and show us how our lives in Christ should grow. They're like the fruits of the Spirit, in as much as they are for all Christians. So when we read Matthew 5, these are not things that happen in the lives of the spiritually elite. These are attitudes that will be representative and characteristic of all of our lives as followers of Jesus. And these beatitudes are not like going to a pick and mix sweet shop where we say, oh, I like that when I'll have that. Or I like that when I'll have that. Or, I'm going to leave those. I'm not so keen on them. So when we see the Beatitudes, we don't pick and mix what we want based on our preference, but actually this is all for us. And this should all, these, all of these should be representative in our lives. It's not like the gifts of the Spirit, where in the gifts of the Spirit, the Bible says that God gives and chooses which gift he gives to each person. But no, these are all to be displayed, these characteristics within our lives. They are kingdom characteristics that are representative of us as Jesus's followers. So we're going to start on reading from verse 3, and it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those is, though theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. <laughs> reading this passage certainly is food for thought. And I've got to be honest. When I read this, I'm like, my heart is not jumping for joy. <laughs> I'm reading words like poor and mourn and hunger and thirst and persecution. And I'm not thinking, yay, I want this. And neither when I read the words and character traits of mercy and pure and peacemaker, am I actually thinking, oh my gosh, these are so obvious and prevalent in my life and they're flowing from my life. But the reality is that Jesus' talk to us is a bit of a challenge. If I'm honest, I've often skirted over these things because I feel a bit uncomfortable with them. They're certainly not things that I would gravitate towards naturally in my life. And I suppose herein lies the first message of this passage. And that is the upside down world, world of the gospel. 
The gospel is completely opposite to what we think. The gospel and the and the gospel and the way that we should live our lives is completely opposite to the way that we want to live our lives. That's why the Bible says his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Yes, once we were children living in darkness, but when we ask Jesus into our lives, we become children of light and we are to walk in the light. And really what this passage is showing us is what walking in the light means. What does it mean to be a child of God? Jesus is emphasizing at the outset of this passage that as his followers, as his disciples, we are to be different. Our lives are to be stamped by Christ and not the culture around us and not by the tendencies that are within us. And I think reading this brings us to a place very quickly that this is not possible to do in our own strength. These characteristics, these kingdom traits are actually not possible in and of ourselves. It's only possible to live this life when they are supernaturally produced in us by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. And to do that, we have to lean completely on him. You know, I read this passage and I see contradiction, if I'm honest. How does the word blessed and the word mourn stay in the same sentence? How is the word blessed and poor, how, how do they fit together? Blessed and persecuted. No, 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 no. These don't go together in my mind. They don't work. But do you know what? This wasn't just a slip of the tongue. When Jesus said blessed, he didn't accidentally say it. And I think he realizes that we think, oh Lord, you don't know what you're on about. So he doesn't just say the word blessed once. He says it eight times. He says it at the beginning of every sentence because he probably thinks like I'm thinking, Lord, you've got it a bit wrong here. It's not the word blessed. So he's like, no, I'm going to say it again and again and again so that you get it. That actually I do mean what I say. And I say that you are blessed when you are poor in spirit. You are blessed when you mourn. You are blessed when you are persecuted oh lord <laughs> really 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 we are blessed the bible jesus didn't say miserable downcast dejected is the man who is poor who mourns who is humble or who is hungry he doesn't use that. That's what I think it should say if I was writing and preaching this. That is what I would say. But Jesus says we are blessed. So what does blessed mean? Well, the Greek word blessed means, is the word makaroios, which means blessed by God. Receiving God's favor. The Amplified Bible translates this word blessed to mean happy, 
to be envied, spiritually prosperous with life, joy, satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of the outward conditions. The word blessed certainly packs a punch, doesn't it? And shows us that actually we can be happy, we can be prosperous. And that's what he, he means. Jesus actually means what he says, that this is the way of life that we will live as his followers. So we're going to have a look at this. We're going to break down this passage over the next two weeks. I'm on this week, then Stephen, Matthew, and then we're going to follow up the next few and the week after to have a look about this blessed life that we're to live as his followers, to see the kind of character that Jesus wants us to live out. The blessed life, the happy life, the spiritually pro and prosperous life. So we're going to explore these eight Beatitudes, and you could almost kind of place these Beatitudes in two different groups. The first four character tra traits primarily focus on our relationship with God, and we're going to look at them today. And then the following four character traits focus on our relationship with others. So let's begin by looking at this. So the first thing I want us to see is, first of all, we are to be desperate. Verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for though theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that even mean? The Greek word here for poor means desperately impoverished and therefore dependent on others for support. So what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying we are to be spiritually desperate for him. To be poor in spirit is the opposite of being spiritually proud. It's not looking at our life and thinking we've got it all together. But it's coming to the realization that something is so desperately lacking and needs to change. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our inability to meet the high standards of heaven. It's recognizing that if we were to qualify for heaven on our own merits, we'd stand no chance. There's nothing in us. No family ties, no respect in the community, no occupation, no so-called good works that are valuable enough to commend us to God. We are spiritually impoverished and therefore utterly, utterly dependent on God's mercy and grace to enter into his kingdom. And this beginning teaching this beginning attitude that Jesus mentions shoots straight across the religious lines of people back in his day. Because that is not what the Pharisees thought. The Pharisees thought they were the spiritually elite. And they approached their God with pride. 
They were proud in spirit. They were proud of their piety. They were proud of their reputation. And they were in complete denial of their sinfulness. In fact, they felt that they were so qualified to enter into heaven that they expected to be welcomed into heaven with a great fanfare of high praise. That is what the religious of that day thought. That is what the Pharisees thought. That actually, in and of themselves, they were more than enough. And that heaven was going to be waiting for them, celebrating as they came into heaven's gates. And Jesus cut straight across the bows of the thinking of that day and says, it's not about you thinking that you've got it together and that you're going to enter in strong. He says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. And do you know what's really interesting is that the Pharisees, when Jesus in the um, chapter before was going about announcing the kingdom of God and he was healing all those that were sick, the Pharisees would have been looking down at those people because the Pharisees believed that the reason why people were sick was because it was God's judgment on them. So they saw themselves at the top of the ladder and they saw the weak and they saw those with disabilities and they saw those with demons right as the scum. And so here, Jesus is like, do you know what? It's not about you being up there on the ladder. Actually, it's those that are broken and poor in spirit. Those are the ones that actually I invite and welcome in and will inherit the kingdom. You see, Jesus cuts straight to the chase. He cuts straight through our high and arrogant mindsets. And he says, no, no, no. Don't ever think that you've got it enough within yourself to warrant and merit access into heaven. Each one of us has to come to the realization that we are bankrupt spiritually. Now, Jesus is talking this not to the unsaved. He's actually talking this to believers. So this is a continual state that we are in as believers. This is not be poor in spirit to inherit. This is, they're already believers, but he's like, we have to have that attitude of heart where we recognize that we are bankrupt. There's nothing in us that warrants any grace or favor being given to us. Jesus starts with this beatitude because this is where things start with God. He makes the point of contact between us and him, not based on what we have, but based on what we don't have. And therefore, we recognize from the outset that this Christian walk has got nothing to do with our own strength. We recognize that without him, we are nothing. We have to completely and utterly rely on the power of the Lord and the Spirit at work in us. Which is why the Bible says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. So being poor of spirit, recognizing the fact that we have nothing to commend ourselves to him is actually the building block from which 
the rest of these beatitudes come in. God is not looking for us to be proud, but to be poor. Have a right estimation of who we are. The second beatitude, the second point I want to bring today is not only are we to be poor, to be desperate, but also we are to be grieved. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What's meant here by mourning? Well, this is not just the simple shedding of tears. The Greek word here to mourn is actually the strongest word found for mourning in the Greek language. And it's used for mourning and grieving and lamenting the dead. It is deep, deep sorrow. So what are we mourning over? Blessed are those who mourn. In this passage... Jesus is actually saying we're to mourn over our condition, our sin. When we look around us and we see the sin that pervades the world in which we live, we mourn. Not just a casual shedding of tears, but a brokenness. You know, and Jesus actually said in the Gospels, we see that Jesus actually wept over Jerusalem because its inhabitants were so blind, they couldn't even see what was going on in their midst. We mourn over the sin and the depravity of humanity. So we mourn for sins of others, but more importantly, we mourn because of our own sin. When Peter realized how much he'd let Jesus down when he denied him, it says in Matthew 26, verse 75, that he wept bitterly. When he realized what he'd done, he wept bitterly. Jesus doesn't talk about casual sorrow for our sins, but a deep grief because of our fallen state. And you know, that's the thing that's so awful about sin. It's so deceptive. It destroys our lives. It destroys the lives of others and it breaks the heart of God. And one of its biggest dangers is its deceitfulness. It's got this ability to lure us into this false sense of security. Especially when it goes unnoticed. Especially when we've done something and it hasn't been discovered. It can lead us into this false sense of security where our minds actually begin to play down the sin. And by ignoring our own sin, do you know what? We actually end up becoming hard. And our hardness will eventually lead us away from Jesus. This is what Hebrews 3 says, verse 13. But you must warn each other every day while it is still today 
so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. See, sin is deceptive. And we often brush it under the carpet. And we're happy to do so when nobody's spotted it. But when we sin and we don't recognize our sin for what it is and we don't mourn over our sin, we end up becoming hard in our hearts towards God. We're not to become like Adam and Eve that tried to hide Listen, God knows we're not going to be perfect, okay? The only person that ever walked this earth that was without sin was Jesus. So we are going to sin. But it's what we do when we sin. Don't sweep it under the carpet and think, oh, well, doesn't matter. No, the Bible says blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over our sin. A great example of this is actually found in the Bible when we look at the life of David, when he mourned after committing adultery with Bathsheba. And you know the interesting thing here when we read Psalm 51, which we will? He didn't mourn for a sin for nearly a year. In fact, he didn't even recognize it. God actually had to send a prophet Nathan to him for him to acknowledge what had happened. And that took place, Nathan came nearly a year after David had sinned. But God brought David to a point of realization in his life, to a point to acknowledge what he had done. Yeah, everyone else didn't have a clue. Oh, Uriah died. Oh, well, oops, battle. But David knew he'd set up that. David knew it wasn't what it seemed. Nobody else was pointing fingers at David, but God was looking. And David didn't repent initially. But God sends out lifelines all the time to us. So David didn't repent, so God sent Nathan. And this is what David says in Psalm 51 after he recognizes the sin that he'd been involved in. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what was evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just, for I was born a sinner. Yes, the moment my mother conceived me, yet your desire, you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Do not keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create In me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take the Holy Spirit away from me. 
struggle for our sin. <laughs> Where we recognize, oh gosh, God, I've failed, I've sinned. Our mourning actually throws us into the arms of God. It throws us into his arms and we plead with him, oh Jesus, forgive me. Please don't take your presence from me. Please don't take your presence from me. You know, Paul had to send a really strong letter to the church in Corinth because they were sinning. And he had to write to them about it. And in 2 Corinthians 7, he actually talks about this letter. And it says this. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Deep sorrow because of our sin causes us to fall on our knees before God in repentance. And it's that repentance that leads us to salvation. It's our repentance that then leads us. We can see here actually fruit was produced in the lives of the people because of their sorrow and their repentance and their turning away from sin. God actually used it to produce something in them. And this is what this scripture says. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our recognition of sin does not cause God to say, stand back. Don't come near me. You're not worthy. Our recognition of sin actually causes us to fall at the feet of our Savior. And the Holy Spirit, who is known as the Comforter, has his arms outstretched wide. And he grabs us to him. And he embraces us. And he comforts us. And he ministers to us his love. And he ministers to us his forgiveness. And he says that you can, be, you can produce fruit as a result of it. So when Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. We don't find ourselves in a place of despair where we're forsaken and left disconnected. But we find ourselves in a place of hope where God ministers to us his salvation and his forgiveness and he changes us. But mourning is a really important part of our lives because we are going to sin. So let's not sweep it under the carpet. But let's recognize it for what it is.
And let's mourn sorrow over the wrongs that we have done. So we're to be desperate. We're to be grieved. And the third thing that we're to be is broken. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other Bible translations, the word meek is actually translated humble. In the Greek, one of the meanings of the word meekness is broken. Not in the sense of a glass being broken, but in the sense of a horse being broken when it is tamed. When a horse is trained to obey the word of a command, when it's learned how to answer the pull of the reins, and it's accepted being controlled and directed, and its strength has great effect when it's submitted to the voice of his master, because he's no longer running around like a wild stallion, but his strength comes under control to achieve great things. And that's how it is with us. That's what it's like with Jesus. When we accept Jesus, we're filled with God. We're filled with his spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to lead us and to guide us and to direct our paths and to pass it a good, true, and holy. Meekness found in our lives means to submit ourselves to God's authority and God's control. And recognize that he knows best. Recognize that he knows best and that we are nothing without him. This characteristic of meekness is all about being broken. It's all about dying to self and not standing on our rights. And let's be honest, that's where we often struggle, don't we? We want to buck and do things our own way. But meek, because meekness doesn't come natural to us. You can't achieve it in our own strength. It is the work of the Spirit within our lives. And we only have to look at the life of Jesus to see this. Each day, he chose to live a submitted life to the Lord. It says this, what great footsteps we get to follow. Jesus said, I, I only do what my father tells me to do. And I only say those things which my father tells me to say. Jesus was submitted to his heavenly father. And we see in the final days of Jesus' life as he surrendered himself completely to the will of God, even though he didn't want to. Matthew 26, 39 says this, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus is the ultimate example of a life living, lived under control. It's a life filled with meekness and humility. And Jesus says, this is a kingdom characteristic that will be evident in our lives. As believers and followers of him, where we allow ourselves to be under the control of our heavenly father. And we choose to renounce our own rights and say, not thy will. But my will, but your will be done. Meekness is not only seen in evident in our relationship with God, but also it's on display for others to see also. Another meaning of the word meek or humble is the word gentle. It means gentle, considerate, unassuming, long-suffering, a lowly and modest mind which prefers to bear injuries rather than return them. 
Meekness is the opposite of arrogance and self-seeking, of bitterness and the desire for revenge. It's a bit of a tall order, isn't it? But do you know what? We see meekness described in two of the greatest people in the Bible. First of all, we see it described of Moses. In Numbers 12, 3, it says this, Now Moses was very humble, or meek, more humble than any other person on earth. He was humble, gentle, patient, long-suffering, considerate, and unassuming. Now remember, Moses had the less-than-perfect start. Okay, he killed an Egyptian because he was angry. And yet, the Bible says Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. That should give us hope because look at what the transformation that can occur in our lives when we are submitted to the control of God. Moses saw transformation. He went from being a murderer to being called very humble and meek. We also see it in the life of Jesus. Despite the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, the mightiest person that's ever walked this earth, Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, let me teach you because I am humble or meek and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus' meekness and gentleness and humility was on display for all to see. And truly, they saw a beautiful thing. The Bible says that when we are meek, we inherit the earth. We come to a place where we realize everything is a gift from God. And we don't deserve it. But we understand that we need it. And we understand our need and accept them for God. And when we are able to accept God's ways without murmuring and complaining or disputing, when we actually control our own desire to do things our way and exercise our rights, but we come under submission and the authority of Jesus, that's when we walk humbly before God and before others. And Jesus says that we're blessed, happy, to be envied, spiritually prosperous, living a life filled with joy. That's what happens when we walk meek. And the final point I want to cover this morning is that we're to be hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I don't know whether I can say that I've ever been starving, starving. I've been hungry, but, you know, living in a a first world country, I don't know whether I've ever experienced hunger the way that Jesus is mentioning it here. I've experienced cravings when I've been on diets and you can't eat chocolate and all you can think about is chocolate. I've been there and the one thing I know about a craving is that it just like consumes me. When I think about chocolate, well, can I just say, I haven't had chocolate for a year. I haven't had sugar for a year. So um, anyway, so, but I still think about it, but I just don't have it. Um, and yeah, so, but what I do know about um, cravings is that it can be re- a real dominant thought in your mind. 
Like I've gone through times where I can't have, like I haven't had chocolate or I wanted chocolate and I'm like, no, we're not having it and not having it and not having it. I tell you what, I'll have an apple instead. So I have an apple instead. I'm still not satisfied. I'm still thinking about chocolate. chocolate. So then I think, right, I'll have this instead. So I have that. But still I'm thinking about chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. So in the end, I've ended up giving in and having chocolate because it's consuming. And I think that's, that's maybe a really poor example. But if a craving is like that, where it's just in your mind all the time, true hunger and thirst is even more intense. When we are truly hungry and thirsty, it's this overwhelming passion and desire and we can't get it out of our minds and Jesus says that we are to be hungry and thirsty for his righteousness so what does that mean well we're already saved we've already been justified by faith we've already accepted Jesus we are made righteous because of his son but it's more than just we're righteous but there goes on to becoming more like him which is all about becoming conformed into his image it's all about us being sanctified and being made holy and we are to hunger and thirst to be more like him to know him more Jesus says that's what we're to be like we're not to just be like oh do you know what oh just snack on him and it's enough for the week I'll have this and that'll be enough but no we're to hunger and thirst for him it's this passionate relationship where we're like Lord I just want to be more like you I'm not satisfied for it to be about me but Jesus I want you to conform me into your image I want you to make me like you where God affects everything we say, everything we do, everything we act. That is what God says that he wants for our lives. He wants us to hunger and thirst for him. And he says when we hunger and thirst for him, we shall be filled if you're going around not feeling full and satisfied, let's question what we're hungering after. Because Jesus said that if we're hungering after him, we will be filled. And the thing about his, the hungering for him, which is amazing, is that he fills us, but we're still longing for more. We'll never have reached the end goal until we meet him in heaven. So our whole life will be about hungering and thirsting for him. It's not taking a meal and being satisfied and saying, well, that set me up. But no, it's this continual walk in dependence. Like, Lord, I want to know you more. Lord, I thirst for you. I'm hungry for you. I want to know your ways. I want to be more like you. Lord, make me Lord like you. Jesus says that that will be a characteristic of us as believers. That there will be a hunger within us for more of him. That we're not satisfied until we've seen all that we can see of him. And we'll never see that until we reach him in heaven. But it's that constant desire and passion for him to fill us, to satisfy us, to change us. And it's exciting. It's exciting to think that this is what God has laid up for you and I. It's scary. It's scary. 
course it's scary because none of these attributes, none of these characteristics are attainable in our own strength. But this life of the believer, this life where Jesus is showing us how we are to look, how we are to act, how we are to be is exciting. And it's filled with blessing and promise. Like Jesus says, blessed, 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 blessed. As we run after, as we pursue these things, after we, as we recognize Jesus, we need you. I think it's beautiful. There's no arrogance, no pride in the follower of Jesus. But it's a right estimation of understanding, Lord, I, there's nothing to commend me to you. I am spiritually bankrupt, and I am desperate for you. And Lord, I need your forgiveness in my life. When I sin, I need you to change me. I recognize my failure and my inability to do the things that are right. But I'm not hardening my heart. Instead, I'm running to you and asking for you to comfort me. And he comforts us. And he then, as we allow ourselves to be submitted to his control, he makes us meek. And in our meekness, in our, in our just, Lord, I deserve none of this. As we do that, we find a deep hunger and a deep thirst from within us to say, God, make me more like you. Make me more like you, Jesus. So we're going to continue looking more on the Beatitudes in two weeks' time. But it's an exciting journey. It's an exciting journey to be conformed and transformed into his image. And this is for all of us. He's making us beautiful. And you know, you may be here today and you've never actually recognized Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So you're looking at this saying, well, I can't do this because I don't know you. Do you know what I love about Jesus is that he is so easy to find. He's so easy. It's so easy to be a friend of Jesus. He doesn't get us to scrub up our act. He doesn't get us to change our ways. But he just says, have simple faith and trust in me. Believe on my name and you shall be saved. So today is the day of salvation for each one of us. And you may be here today or you may be watching online and you're like, today is the day I need to be saved. Or if you find yourself crying out saying, I want this, then pray something like this. Say, Jesus, I need you. I ask you to come into my life today. Forgive me of my sin. I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I ask you to change me, to transform my life. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior.
You know, if you prayed that prayer, you have made the best decision of your life. And hunger after him. Get yourself to church. If it's not, if you don't live in Newport, find a church near you. But get yourself to church and begin to unpack this beautiful message of hope and transformation that God gives to each one of us. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come right now. And I'm just going to pray for us as they do. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives. We don't deserve it. But, Lord, you freely give us all things, and you give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, Jesus, today, we ask, Father, that you would have your way in us, that you would allow these characteristics to be represented in our lives, Jesus. Lord, we want more of you. Lord, we want more of you. We don't want to live according to our rights. We want to die to our rights, die to our way of thinking because, Lord, yours is the perfect way. Your way is the righteous path that leads to godliness. It leads to abundance. And, Lord, that is the way that we want to follow today. So, Lord, conform us to be more made to more in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.